0: So hello and welcome to, this is uh, you know the first live seminar but you've already done the first week and the first week is just three reflections and the last week is similar, it's only a few reflections so you're about to enter into the first full week. Um, I do want to say a couple of things about what you've just done and then it's really an introduction to next week uh, and for anybody who would like and I really recommend this at PST, which is basically an hour and a half from now, just looking at the watch, an hour and a half from now there is a processing room, processing Zoom room, and you should have the link in the email. Uh, And I recommend if you want to talk a little bit more about what I'm speaking about and just process the reflections, that's the place to do it. Um, That's uh, 7.30 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. Can't do all of the other time zones. You have to figure it out. (laughs) Um, Okay, so... Where where have we gone so far? This is the first year that I started off with the arguments for the existence of God. And I'm really pleased that I did that, but I think it's quite a boring way to start. So well done. Um, But previously, uh, the opening reflections were more about just creating a vibe, a feeling, a kind of almost a sense of where the critique of God arises. And uh, this year, I wanted to change things up and thought, if this is atheism for Lent, there is a very powerful structure to this course, which is affirmation, negation, negation of negation, that that then becoming an affirmation that's negated. And there's this process. So I thought we should start with the first affirmation, which is the existence of God. And really what I did is I looked at the three main philosophical arguments. There are so many arguments right there's you know there, there might be I don't think there's hundreds there's there may be hundreds but most of them are rubbish right but there might be a few dozen like you know interesting arguments for the existence of God uh, but the ones that are very very logical and rigorous you can generally boil them down to three and those are the three that you have looked at and it's been very exciting for me. I, last time I did the arguments for the existence of God, I was basically an undergrad. So returning to them with all of my studies since then and thoughts since then, it was actually quite fun to go back and kind of re-examine them and, and understand them in a better way. Uh, when you're young, or the first time you start doing philosophy, you can start to parrot things off and not really know why you're parroting things off. You kind of just say what maybe the lecture says or the book says, and you might even say things that are good, but you don't understand them. It's like chats, uh, GBT, right? Some people are saying it's like a 15 year old who's read the entire internet, right? And that's my experience of chat GBT at the moment. Um, it's like a, a kid who literally has read the whole internet and is very confident, um, but does not really have interpret, uh, t- interpretive skills, and so sometimes goes way off. Um, I don't know if you're interested in the chat GPT stuff and the AI stuff that's going on, that's quite, quite fascinating, quite interesting. But um, uh, I noticed, like, the reason why I want to put Pascal in is because Pascal's wager, uh, you know, is a simple idea, but actually it's, um, it's got a lot of depth and weight to it. So I used to power it off that, oh, Pascal's a proto-existentialist. I would say that. Thank God nobody ever asked me what I meant by it because I just heard people I respected say it. Uh, but in do, you know, studying later on in life, I realized, oh no, Pascal's a proto existentialist because he says, we don't know whether there is meaning or not, or God or not, and we have to wager in life and make decisions in the unknown. I'm like that's a very existential idea. So anyway, we'll get to hopefully Pascal later on, no promises. Uh, but going back to these arguments was a lot of fun and there's three primary like using re- reason logical philosophical reason and that's the teleological the cosmological and the ontological i very briefly want to kind of try to say where i think a good way of understanding them is and maybe a good way of seeing the potential flaw. and i'm using emmanuel kant there's Lots of different arguments for and against, and you are going to get some of them uh, this week, uh, particularly Bertrand Russell, the reflection of Bertrand Russell, which is a nice audio reflection. Um, you will hear some of his critiques. But what I like about Immanuel Kant is he boils them down to the three, so he gets the three, and then he kind of says, well, you know what? The teleological argument actually kind of rests on the cosmological argument. So for the teleological argument to work, as in to get you to God, it's going to rest on the cosmological. But the cosmological for that work, it's going to rest on the ontological. So for any of them to work, as in to kind of get you to God, it's all the ontological. And I know from the comments and also from studying it myself, the ontological seems like the most weird one, the most bizarre one, and potentially the most wrong one but it's also actually weirdly the most philosophically rich one. It's the one that um, is probably out of them all the philosophically strongest. It's definitely the least persuasive. I don't know if there's anybody in the history of the world who has been persuaded by the ontological argument. Um, and most people who who argue for it, like the Anselm and Descartes, two very famous people who argued for this. But also there's Godel, a the mathematician, argued for a form of this. They're not doing it for apologetics. They are lost in, well, for they do it for various reasons. Anselm was kind of uh, a contemplative exercise, uh, almost like a prayer and a thoughtful reflection for other people who are already in the religious world. For Descartes, he kind of needed God for his philosophical structure because uh, without getting into it, he kind of needed God to justify that we could trust our senses. Um, and you know, and so for some like Godel, I think it was just purely an interesting logical experiment. But the teleological rests on the cosmological rests on the ontological. And to put it in a nutshell, Kant says, okay, let's imagine the teleological argument works. And he had a lot of respect for this argument. He thought it was, you know, he, t- he took it seriously. Um, and it's probably the most persuasive one. So he says, well, let's imagine that it works as in, we look at a watch, using William Paley, we look at a watch and we see, uh, we, have, we postulate a watchmaker. We look at the world. Well, we should postulate a world maker. Um, Kant says, and kind of following Hume, he says, well, this, if you, if it works, he's not saying it does work, cause, but if it works, and um, there's lots of reasons to, to doubt it, especially with Descartes, whatever, but if, if you can find a way To say that even the constants of nature show an intelligence, right? Not biological evolution, but more basic than that, mathematical structures in the universe that seem to presuppose intelligence. Kant says, well, the problem is that doesn't get you to God, that gets you to a supreme intelligence, right? Um, And it's almost like you could be, like some people today, Say they believe that we could be in a simulation, and a, a superior race has created a computer program, and we are in that program, and we are actually part of that program, and uh, so there is a superior intelligence that's created all of this, uh, but it's not God. Uh, so Kant says, you know, you can't you can't get from this finite creation to some sort of infinite intelligence, and then somebody could say, yes, but. That intelligence would require um, an even greater intelligence to have to have created that, okay. But then you have to say, and that intelligence would have required an even greater intelligence. But you never get to the first, most supreme, all-knowing being from from that thing. You just get a infinite regress of like better and better, more intelligent beings, right? Um, And so Kant says, well, so to get from this infinite regress to a first, most intelligent being, you kind of have to believe in a necessary being, right? Not these contingent intelligences, but eventually all this contingent line, you have to imagine that there's a necessary being, a necessary intelligence at at the end of it. And so now you're in the cosmological argument, because that's what the cosmological argument in its varieties basically argues is, the contingent universe can't go back infinitely there must be a necessary being so now we've gone from teleological to cosmological and Kant says well here's the thing is like yes let's imagine it works and i'm actually quite uh sympathetic to this argument yeah maybe it works right that there's a necess- there's some necessary reality right but that could be mathematics mathematical structures It could be quantum effects it could be the universe itself it could be god uh it could be um it could be some sort of uh, universal constants of nature right whatever it is like something necessary has to exist what the cosmological argument if it's if it's successful tells you is that maybe nothing isn't primal right maybe maybe nothing is a concept that we have but but the universe, there's been always something going on that's ne- that necessarily exists, not necessarily God. So the, the person has to say, okay, but there's only one being who has necessary existence by definition, and that's God. And so now you're in the ontological argument, right? So, so you've gone right through, you're going, oh, right, all of this rests on whether God, in the very definition of God, needs Existence. If the essence of God is necessary existence, then then it works, right? And then Kant's basic argument at this point is that existence, and I've said this before, I think a few days ago, but existence is not a predicate. It sounds like it is. So a predicate is something that quality you name. You can name certain qualities that a thing has. Existence isn't another quality that you add to the list. It's a modality. It's a mode of being. Things can exist, you know, in the mind. They can exist in reality, contingently, necessarily. Like existence is something, but it's not a predicate. And if Kant is right about that, then, uh, then God is not the only being that could necessarily exist. Ne- existence is... Uh, not a quality that God has if God exists God would necessarily exist but it's a it's not a quality it's a modality and by separating those two I can't ascend it just don't work it just doesn't work um, and funnily enough Kant g- gives a different argument for the existence of God and w- what he argues very briefly um, and it's, a, it's very interesting because at first I think it's incredibly weak sounding and yet I think there's something really interesting about it, but he ultimately says, yes, forget about God, you can't get to God with reason. But he says you can hope that God exists. And what he means by hope is he says that we have within us a sense of moral good, a sense of ethics, right? Even if we don't uh, live up to it, we all of us at different times have felt that there are things that we should live and die for, right? There are things that no matter how much pleasure it would give us not to do it, or no matter how much pain it would give us to do it, we should do it, right? Now I say we don't do it, but we kind of can feel that moral sense. And also we, we desire to be happy. We want to be happy, content, have beatitude, right? Have a certain peace. And we have a sense in which those two things should be together, right? morality and, and uh, happiness but they're not, they don't, they're not together right? You know the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous so Kant kind of argues that well we can hope that one day those will be unified, they will be joined together we will see that they are woven together and that hope for Kant uh, involves a belief in God who would do that and so Kant says faith is a type of hoping and living into that hope. But you can see that's not really an argument for the existence of God from reason. It's it's doing something else. Anyway, and you can read about that in one of the links that I think um, I connect with the readings this week. So after we've done that, and that's great. You've done them now. You know the arguments. That's useful to know. Um, We go into the traditional arguments against the existence of God this week. And I have to say, these first 10 days are the most boring of atheism for that. These are the valleys before we get into the mountains. And the mountain top is after this week. So I'm just encouraging you to stick with it because once we get into next week, I think it gets much more interesting and rich in terms of a lot of the reflections. So you gotta do the valleys before we get into the mountains. Um, And this week is really the traditional standard arguments against the existence of God. But I've tried to give you the best ones, right? So the first day, which is tomorrow, the first reflection you'll get is by Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew was a very famous analytic philosopher. He wrote, I think it was the most translated and most read article in the the history of philosophy. I don't know if that's still the case, but on God. And uh, controversially near the end of his life, he became a deist of sorts, and he kind of got drawn into the area called intelligent design. And this is quite controversial because uh, it all, it seemed like Anthony Flew, when he was very elderly, which is when this happened, was facing significant cognitive decline. And he got in with some religious people, and there's a lot of discussion as to whether this was a sincere belief, which it could well have been. Well, I think it is a sincere belief, but whether it was a belief that, um, that, that was partly to do with this cognitive decline. And I do have a friend in the BBC who has a PhD uh, in philosophy and theology and he interviewed Anthony Flew and they couldn't use the interview because it wasn't coherent. So I don't know if that adds or doesn't, but I know that when he was elderly, that was happening. However, as I say, I do want to take away from the fact that it may have been a genuine belief Um, But he was basically one of the most famous of his day kind of atheist writers. And in tomorrow's reading, you're going to get um, him arguing that uh, not for atheism, but basically saying that there is a form of atheism, and he calls it negative atheism, that doesn't have to put any arguments forward. It's actually... um, the theist who needs to put an argument forward, not the atheist, right? And he uses the example of in court. In, in, in court, in a country where it's innocent until proven guilty, uh, the, the, um, pro- the prosecution need to list very carefully and very precisely the crimes Right, so the police, whenever they arrest somebody, they list very precisely all the crimes the person did. Breaking an entry, threatening with a deadly weapon, resisting arrest. Right? So list of the, the crimes and then evidence has to be presented. There has to be enough evidence, I think, even to get the case into court or it'll just be thrown out. So those are two things that happen. And then, you know, the defense comes in, pokes holes in the arguments. Now, if you lived in a place where it was guilty until proven innocent, uh, it would be kind of the other way around. And, and, and sadly, the court of public opinion is a little bit of that, right? We all know that in the court of public opinion, and many of us have been guilty of this, we presume guilt until someone is proven innocent. So if there's some claims that are made about some pop star or whatever, we can tend to think it's guilty and kind of be, and I've seen this with some of my friends who have, Publicly attack people online, um, before all the evidence is in, right? So, uh, and what Flew is saying is he so he makes this t- distinction between positive atheism and negative atheism, and he says the positive atheist is the one who argues for the non-existence of God. It's like a position; they take a position, God does not exist, they argue for it, and. That kind of makes sense in a world where it's guilty until proven innocent, right? That's a world where kind of like, oh, we take it for granted the belief in God, that's what we start with, so you have to have arguments against it. But Flew says, well, that might be the way things are in reality, right? And the way people talk in the everyday world. Actually, there's a form of atheism which says, no, I believe one less thing than you. Like, I'm not the one making the claim. And he says, this type of atheism, the A- and he, this is the true meaning of it, is the A is not a positive position. The A signifies a not-faced. I am not-faced. Not I have a positive alternative theory, but that I have not seen any conception of God that seems coherent to me or, or has the evidence. And so, like, yes, I'll engage, right? Anthony Flew is a philosopher, and he engaged, and in fact, he became a deist, so he's kind of almost showing that his position isn't, anti-theist but he's just saying you've got to get this right that if you're the one making the claim you know what you've got to do and he talks about this in the article he says you've got to do two things he says you've got to give me a definition of God what you mean because there's so many definitions of God so I can't be an atheist for every single God right that's what a positive atheist is a positive atheist is an atheist who maybe disbelieves in certain gods right but the negative Atheist is saying like, listen, there's hundreds, thousands of gods. And first thing you have to do, give me a coherent definition, so I understand what you mean. You've got to provide that. And then secondly, now provide me some arguments why I should be persuaded. Uh, and it kind of leaves it at that, right? And so, and so, and you know, for him, he says like he, has, he had not been convinced of any of the arguments but he was basically saying don't worry if you're a atheist about having to have an argument you know that's that's this other position and it's not agnosticism because an agnostic has to have uh, a view of the god that they don't know whether it exists or not right so an agnostic you give them a notion of god and they say well i don't know if that exists or not and so they're oscillating the the atheist is the one who doesn't even have a a concept of God. It says I haven't heard a concept of God that is coherent or evidence is coherent enough and so I I just don't believe. Um, Very interesting article. There's also a very good supplementary article in Tomorrow's Reflections. Uh, For anyone who's done Atheism for Lent before, you'll have got it. Um, And that's another interesting argument about theology and falsification but that's a supplementary reading. Um, I'll offer two critiques of this um, and then we'll move on. Just to let you know, is one of the critiques says no, 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 flu. You've got it the opposite. You've got it the wrong way around, right? You're saying that uh, the atheist doesn't have to present arguments. They it's the theist who does, right? They believe something extra. They they need to come with evidence and all of that. Um, someone like Alvin Plantinga, uh, who developed what's something called reformed epistemology. Plantinga says. There are some beliefs we have that are properly basic. And he says, like, for example, belief in other minds, uh, belief that the past existed, uh, belief that when you close a door, what's behind that door doesn't immediately disappear, only to reappear when you open the door again. Right? These are properly basic beliefs. And what he means by that is, one, they don't rest on other beliefs. Two, they are intuitively correct, Three, they're not irrational. And four, they may be self evident. Not always, but right. So, but these are basic beliefs, guys. Self evident or intuitively reasonable. They're not irrational and they're kind of like, they lie at the ground upon which we build beliefs. And if someone came to you and said, Oh, you believe in other minds, you're going to have to prove that to me. The person could respond by saying, "Well, no, that belief is properly basic, right? That's that's something basically any rational person shares. So if you don't believe it, you're going to have to provide me with the evidence, right? So you're it's you that has to provide the evidence, and then Plantinga wants to argue that belief in God can be properly basic, and when belief in God is properly basic, uh, the it's the, the opposite of flu, it's like, no, no, the, the, the job of convincing lies on the side of the atheist. And uh, yeah, it's an interesting argument. I don't know if it works, I don't think it works, but it's interesting. Um, and then another argument which is interesting is um, you could try to argue that although it looks like the, the negative atheist has one less belief than the theist, There's a way of reconceptualizing, not changing it, but kind of like bringing out the implicit uh, beliefs and the implicit positions of both and saying, no, 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 they they both actually make the same amount of claims about the world. So the theist says, basically the theist is an idealist, right? The traditional theist believes that an intelligence lies at the source of everything that is. Some all reality, all materiality arises out of a prior intelligence. But if you don't believe that, then you could say, you could argue the person is a materialist, saying the basic stuff of reality is material, out of which intelligence and rationality arise. So one could try, and I don't know if this is successful either, but some people have tried to argue that the atheist is an implicitly has a, has a basic belief and a basic belief that there's a kind of space-time causality that is kind of at the core of everything out of which eventually arises intelligence and so that's a belief just like idealism and so the real argument is between whether idealism or materialism are the better philosophy um so yeah those are two critiques but if just to clarify because i've talked a lot the the basic thing the only thing you have to remember when you're reading this reflection is who who where's the burden of proof lie right who has to provide the arguments I say Flew says he's not talking about how it is in the world he's not talking about he's just saying no there there is in an ideal type of philosophical debate one would say The theist is the one who has to come with the arguments, present them, and the clear definition of God because that word is so airy fairy. And what can you do with it? You know, you have to define your terms. So, from there, um, most of the reflections actually kind of like play with that. There's one exception. So, the next day is Bertrand Russell, and that's an audio of a talk he gave. Bertrand Russell was like one of the first new atheists. He was kind of he was like this new atheist before new atheists. He was a bestseller, supremely intelligent, actually um, uh, absolutely brilliant logical mind, and one of the real important figures in analytic philosophy. And he wrote a book, so he wrote some technical work, and then he wrote popular books. And one of the popular books he wrote, which I think might have been based on uh, short talks he gave at the BBC or something, or essays, uh, it's called Why I Am Not a Christian, and this was, I said, a bestseller. Uh, it was very big, and you're getting one of the one of the talks from that, one of the chapters. And in that, he he does the very in the first half. He says why he thinks none of the arguments work, the main arguments. So again, he's not putting an argument forward for atheism. He has listened to the arguments that have been put forth. He's listened to the definitions, and he. You know, he argues that the definitions are not very precise and have become less precise over the years. So he, he gets the, the definition, which is getting less precise, and then he looks at the arguments, and he, he, he tells you why he finds none of them persuasive. And then in the second part, he talks about how Jesus, although he really respects the morality of Jesus, and even if Jesus never existed, he said, you know, there's there's many things in the Gospels to admire, but he also says, but there's also lots of things not to admire. So he's kind of going like, if you think Jesus is the son of God, then you know, you're know you going to expect more than what you see. The second half of the talk is not as related to atheism for Lent. So if you don't, it's 38 minutes long. If you don't have that amount of time, doesn't matter. Just do the first bit where he talks about the arguments. And that follows nicely on from Flew, I think. After that, we have... You know one of the maybe yeah, this is maybe the more interesting one of the week uh it is david hume uh david hume is probably as well, the most famous scottish philosopher one of the great british philosophers and he was kind of a skeptic of sorts right um, he was uh, and a very very important thinker to others who came after him and he famously wrote a book uh, of dialogues about religion and he, this was such a controversial book that some people persuaded him not to release the book until he was dead, right? So he did that, it was released posthumously because it was seen as a risky move. Now, he wouldn't have lost his life over it, I don't think, but he may have lost his job over it. His, you know, He might not have been able to publish other books. So it was a risky thing. And it is a great question to ask, well, why was it so risky? Because on the surface... It's three people who believe in God, discussing existence and nature of God. So you go, right, okay, this book is so controversial, but it's three believers, right? This is the 18th century, still a lot of belief. Um, and the three people are uh, Cleanthes, uh, Demi, and Philo, right? Now, Cle- Cleanthes is a guy who, uh, believes in the existence of God and believes that you can you can know something about the nature of God through looking at the universe so he is the standard kind of uh, apologetic kind of religious figure and he represents one of the dominant religious strains of the 18th century then uh, Demi is someone who also very much believes in God but is more of a mystic and says well we can know that God exists, but we cannot know anything about the nature of God. God is beyond all finding out. And you're going to discover more of that next week, so we're going into the mystics. But Demi is a type of mystic, and it's another dominant type of thinking of the 18th century. And so they're arguing about whether you can know what God is like through looking at the universe. And then there's Philo. And Philo is widely considered to be closest to who Hume is in the dialogues. But what's great about this, just like Kierkegaard and Plato and others, there is a rich philosophical tradition in writing a book that doesn't explicitly give your position, but invites the reader into the dialogue and invites the reader to experience what it's like to have a really good conversation that builds and that kind of like brings insight. And I think any great philosopher is more interested in that then you know telling you exactly what they think uh and that's what's so beautiful i suppose that's what's so beautiful about these the defining texts of philosophy which are dialogues um is that there's something beautiful about a great conversation and some of you are experiencing that in whatsapp and i've experienced that in the the groups around me and also outside of those and a lot of you have like kind of pub nights where you discuss philosophy and theology and um you know the real enjoyment of losing yourself in an argument uh, nerdy as that sounds <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's the thing that lights me up um, and so you know Hume is inviting the reader into enjoying the back and forth so you go well okay why was it controversial well a lot of people say it was controversial um, because Philo is a skeptic of sorts very similar to Hume as I say so you get more of Hume's voice in Philo And, you know, obviously he was told you don't want to be too sceptical. But, say, Philo believes in God in the book, right? So you go, well, would it have been really that dangerous? Was there something else going on? And I think it's because, this is my theory, um, but I think it it makes sense, is that there's something much more dangerous going on in this book. Um, And the atheist debating two theists, right? That's not that controversial. Even in the 18th century, I don't think that would have been that controversial. I mean, maybe he would have lost his job. But I mean, people would have responded and it w- there would have been a debate. I think what makes the book more uncanny and unnerving at that time, and even today, but at that time, was that Philo was believed in God, but said that basically God was weak and incompetent. Right, and That's more uncanny than someone who doesn't believe in God. You can kind of argue against them, and they still have the same definition. God is great. God is brilliant. Like the ontological argument, God is all-knowing, all-powerful. And then this person said, but that God doesn't exist. Philo is saying, yeah, it looks like there's kind of an intelligent designer. Maybe we should call that God. But my goodness, like looking at the universe, it's not a very good God. You know, not, not a very morally good God and not even a very kind of technically good God. Why have got an appendix? Why does why do some creatures eat the insides of other creatures, etc., etc.? And both the other two are quite um, frustrated by this. And and Demi even walks out. It's funny because Demi and Philo seem so close because both of them are saying, like, oh, you can't really know God for sure. Uh, but Demi is saying that because God is so amazing, you can't know God. And, and Philo is saying, well, you can't really know God, but, hey, we can kind of, like, go... Maybe not a great god, right? So, I I do think that's that's a dangerous and interesting move, um, and and much more interesting because again, it's like, uh, it's almost like sometimes you know the way in contemporary, like in the contemporary culture, uh, someone in your own inverted commas side, your own team, who kind of undermines it, who critiques it, is more is somebody you dislike more than someone who's on the other. As in very common team, they completely disagree with you, but you can kind of know where they stand and they know where you stand, and you argue back and forth. But it's the person in your own team who suddenly kind of undermines the whole thing that they're the real threat. I think that's what's going on in this book, so I think you'll enjoy that interesting snippet of conversation that you get uh, on that on that day. Um, after that, we have. And I might change the order slightly. At the moment, we have. Um, a guy called John Mackey after this. And this is more standard. I had to put this in because if there's three basic arguments for the existence of God that really boil down to one, right? Now, I say there's other arguments like the argument from miracles or with morality, but the three philosophical arguments which boil down to the ontological, then in atheism there's famously kind of one. Right? also one, that, and it's the argument about, of evil, the incoherence of the notion of God that comes from the existence of suffering, uh, unwarranted suffering. And, unwarranted, um, suffering. and uh, Mackey gives a very coherent version of that. Uh, I think I've got the original version also as a supplemental reading, but what Mackey is arguing is pretty much the argument that if God exists suffering, evil exists as well and God is all good um, oh yeah sorry i said say it again, that if God is all powerful there is evil and God is good uh, that's incoherent, that's logically incoherent doesn't fit together God can be good and not all powerful and evil exists right because if evil exists and God is good but God isn't all powerful then we can say well God can't stop unnecessary suffering God can't stop evil because although God is all loving and all good God does not have the power to do it right you can also say God could be uh, all powerful and evil exists but then God couldn't be good right because you can say well yeah God could change good God could rid the world of unnecessary suffering but because God isn't good God doesn't do it Um, or you can have God is all powerful and all good, but then there can't exist unnecessary suffering, unnecessary evil, right? Um, because otherwise God would get rid of it. So you kind of go, okay, you can only have two out of three. So what ones, what ones can you get rid of? And the argument is, well, we know there's evil in the world. That's like, like a posteriori arguments that, that you've just got. The a posteriori argument is the argument from experience. So from experience, we see suffering that is unnecessary. We see, yeah, we see necessary suffering sometimes. We see suffering that could be educational, absolutely. But do we witness in nature and in in the world, do we witness unnecessary pain and suffering and death and torture? And if we go yes, then we are kind of like logically obliged to... Question one of the other premises, and if you do that, then basically you are questioning the very essence of God, because those are qualities that God should have. So it kind of almost rests on the ontological argument as well. So that's that's that argument. So that is actually a version of what Flew would call positive atheism, and that is an argument where you know, especially if you're not convinced, that uh, the atheist can stay silent. You know, and just and listen and argue back, but not have to put a position up themselves. Then, you know, this argument from evil is a positive argument that is used um, to kind of, you know, argue against the traditional religious notion of God. Um, and after that, we're going to have Kant. I think, um, Immanuel Kant, who I've mentioned a few times, he uh, he brilliantly. Argues, and I think this is a much more effective than you know. I said there's two critiques of flu, right? The reform epistemologists who say, no, 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 it's actually the atheist's responsibility to to prove that God doesn't exist because God is a properly basic belief, or the other view, which is, ah, it it doesn't rest on both people, like there's no one's got the edge because both people have the same amount of beliefs. So, right, you know, throw a stone or thick a coin, right? Um, Kant would kind of say that. Using pure reason, you can not Not that you can't conceptualize ultimate reality and what's going on, uh, Kant's problem is, no, you can do that in too many ways. It's not that reason can't give us answers. It gives us too many answers, and they're mutually exclusive. Right? So Kant, and he calls these antinomies, he says, look, pure reason can, uh, can be used to argue that the universe goes on forever. And pure reason can be used to argue that it's finite and doesn't. Pure reason can be used to construct a purely logical argument that the universe is infinitely divisible, right? That everything you find can be divided, divided, divided. And you could come to the position that there there is an indivisible dimension to fundamental reality. And that God exists and that God doesn't exist. These are antinomies, so I just introduced that as an interesting way of Kant go on. Again, it's not that reason doesn't get you somewhere. It kind of gets you through many places, pure reason. And this is why Kant says he gives that up for practical reason, for understanding, for basically the sciences. Because he says metaphysics, ugh, you just, yeah, you can make a really cogent argument, but yeah, on both sides. Um, so that's the antinomies that you're going to see. And then finally, I think as a way of in kind of in a in a joking way, to show an example of what Kant means, I I uh, introduce, Kask, uh, this guy called Gasking's uh, the ontological ontological argument against the existence of God, and this is quite a funny argument. I wonder if I should just uh, yeah, I yeah I'm not going to tell you what it is because if I tell you too much you won't have, you know you won't read it so I won't tell you what it is um, except to say. He he's an Australian philosopher. He's not that he's not well known or anything. He's not like everyone else here. Are and most people in this whole course are canonical important figures. Um, and this this week the most important figures are Hume and Kant. They're like they're they're the big big philosophers. And then you've got Mackie and Flew, and they're pretty important. And then you've got Gaskin and uh, Bertrand Bertrand Russell's. You put up there maybe somewhere you know you got Kant, you've got hume and then you've got russell yes and then you've got the others and gaskin's kind of the you know the least important but um but he said to a friend over lunch supposedly in australia he, he gave an ontological argument for why god couldn't exist and he never wrote it down but his friend wrote it down it's passed around and i think it's fascinating i'm going to include it in my next book uh i think there's something profound in it, but it also, you know, but not in, maybe not in its direct logic, right? But it's, it's a playful sense of which, oh my goodness, yeah, reason can get you to really strange places. So once you've read the Kant's antinomies, Gaskin's ontological proof, I think it's just a way of going, oh yeah, this, this is one example of how pure reason can get you to two opposites, right? You can get to the ontological argument for the existence of God, the ontological argument against the existence of God. So there you go. That is the week in a nutshell. Um, I know I'm going to look at your questions in a second. I, I know there was a lot of information there. So the big thing to remember is who, who has the burden of proof whenever it comes to these arguments? Uh, you're going to get one very good argument against the existence of God, the evil one. Oh, I should say in that one, that, that has generated so much interesting responses and counter responses so it's not that that one argument silenced the debate it kind of went on and people responded and then gave counter arguments so that's a very living thing so there's that argument there's you see with hume this kind of notion of do we really get to an all-powerful god if you believe in god would you not be more reasonable to think that god's a bit rubbish (laughs) Um, and you got russell's rejections of the arguments um, the antinomies So there you go, that's what you got. Going to look at your questions now. Um, Oh, yeah, I saw someone mention the narcissism of small differences. Uh, Dawson, yes, uh, yeah, I bet you're referencing hating the person in your own team, absolutely. Um, uh, Oh, yeah, Haley mentioned turtles all the way down. Yes, that's the, you know, the world rests on a turtle, and supposedly somebody once asked this guru, well, what's that turtle rest on? Oh, another turtle. And they go, well, what's that turtle rest on? And the guru said, hey, don't try to fool me. Don't try to outsmart me. I know the answer, so do you. It's turtles all the way down. That's the infinite regress. Uh, so, oh, Melanie, thank you. Um, when you say the ontological argument, does that mean just the argument we read about in Descartes this week, or is it something more broad than that? What is the ontological argument? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, so the ontolo- there are different versions of the ontological argument. So you're right. So it's in and, and all of these arguments, there's different versions. I think what you got with Descartes, I think, I think most really is a, is, a, is a classical description of the ontological argument. It's kind of like, so yeah, in one way, what you've got and what you've read is a classic version of it. But there are other versions. So for example, uh, Alvin Plantinga, developed what's called a modal arg- ontological argument and it's it was an attempt to get round kant's critique and so that's a modern version but what but they all have something in common and what all ontological arguments have in common is that existence is something that god has not just existence necessary existence god cannot not exist they uh, and and that's what makes it an ontological argument. And the why the word ontology is used because ontolo- ontology means being. Whenever you talk about ontology, you're talking about the essence of something. So when philosophers use that word ontology, they might be talking about what is the essence of being human, what is the essence of of the physical universe, what is the kind of the fundamental essence of God. That's that's what makes it ontological. The cosmological and teleological, they don't, te- on the surface, they do not rely on the, on this idea of necessary existence. So that's why they're not ontological. So hopefully that clears it up. It's, this it's a brilliant question. Yeah, Descartes is a classical description of it. The first description is in a book called The Proslogion uh, by Anselm, and I think that's in The Reflections. Uh, and then, as I say, someone like Alvin Plantinga and Google also they have modern versions but they all share in common this idea that necessary existence is a property that god that the concept god must include uh oh yeah and dawson responded to that yes uh, and oh yeah all right dawson you just said exactly what i said so more succinctly thank you <laughs> um Well, that's great. Oh yeah, John says, I didn't say burden of proof. Yes, that's great. Burden of proof is a great uh, phrase, a great term to describe that. Um, And if I didn't say that 100%, that's a great way of describing it. And you know, Flew says in the argument, he says, you can't imagine a country that is guilty until proven innocent. And he says, and I say, the court of public opinion is sometimes a wee bit like that. And he said in that, in that kind of world it would make sense for the burden of proof to be on the atheist side. But he, he but he does go like, you wouldn't want to live in a world like that. <laughs> and uh, we've got a better system. Innocent until proven guilty is a better system. So it's not that he's saying you couldn't have the other, but he is saying like you prefer to be in, in that type of world. Oh yeah, Dawson, this is good it seems to me that almost every argument for or against theism so far has rested on a super being concept of god are there any arguments on either side based on a different definition of that yeah you know actually the best thing i can say to that is that's kind of where we're going that the way atheism for lent is structured is we start with kind of that traditional notion of god as a super being and. Um you know I I didn't in I did in an interview with Rob Bell one time, I talked about God as the ground of being, super being and everyone thought I was I said bean, like B E A N. I actually was talking to a friend who brews coffee um in Belfast and I was thinking of doing a wee special ground of bean coffee for some of my patrons. <laughs> so I may end up doing that. That's beside the point. Anyway, you're absolutely right, Dustin is it that I'm setting up atheism for Lent starting with those arguments but what will happen as we go further is that we will move to different conceptions of God and what you'll see in week three is the negation of the negation which is the mystics will broadly accept the atheistic arguments but they will do something uh kind of interesting with that they will turn those into a type of affirmation and then that will itself be negated. And then some, and then the existential theologians will come up. So yeah, so I guess all I'm saying is yes, you, you, you've you've kind of like preempted where we're going, which is good. That means your 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 mind is working fast. You know where we're going, and by the time we get to the end of atheism for Lent, we will at least be encountering a very different understanding of potentially what that word God means. Um. Oh, there's great comments here. My goodness, brilliant, John. uh John Fieldman. Hey, how's it going? Um, since Hegel's logic is basically an anal- i knew you were going to ask a good and tough question. Uh, which is great. Why it's great to have you on board for that reason. Um, since Hegel's logic is basically an analytical exposition of the concept of being. Uh, do you believe it is fair to read Hegel's general philosophy as a singular ontological uh, ontological argument writ large? John, what a got a great question that. Um which uh, so the long story short is yes actually and maybe I was going to mention that at one point is that uh, um, especially I'm thinking of phenomenology of spirit could I think could be argued as as one big ontological argument uh, for the existence of God and one that that I might say works (laughs) Uh, but 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 you don't end up with the traditional notion of God as you know so yes so everybody else what john is saying which is very interesting is like hegel the philosopher hegel starts with a conceptual apparatus a concept he starts with kind of like he follows pure idea and thought in fact the the phenomenology of spirit um it starts with it almost starts with going like like and he's not he's not like Descartes. he's not doing something foundational basis like to think is you have a subject and an object you know when it like when we go around the world and we we think we are there's a there's a me and there's a concept concept of what i'm thinking about and he takes this idea and it follows it and follows it and this collapses into deeper and deeper contradictions and antagonisms and and you you end up moving from life to consciousness to self-consciousness to culture and ethics and this this kind of basic reflection on reflection this basically thought this basic thought about thought on, on kind of unfolds into an argument that ultimately sees everything a kind of dialectical relation with everything and can be seen as an argument ultimately for God as the unity of unity and difference so the long shores I think that's a brilliant thing says and I've i i broadly speaking think that Hegel gave give us a, an effective ontological argument but of course instead of being a paragraph long it's 500 pages long um i don't know what you think i'd like to hear what you think john if you agree with that but yeah you know. uh well ruby said check out uh, oh yeah i've heard i've have i read that book uh, Thomas J. Ward's book, God can't—oh, God can't. Good perspective on understanding God related to suffering. Okay, that's yeah. I've heard. I've, I don't think I've read him, but or I did. I've come across some stuff, but I mean, I think it's like a long time ago. So, anybody's got book recommendations, stuff like that, that's very useful and good. Um, I think I've hit most of the questions, but there's lots of comments. Uh oh. Heidi said will you get and let's finish with this one will you get into more postmodern discussions of God for example John Caputo and God is insisting rather than existing absolutely and I think John Caputo is in this year he's he's in the, he's been in all the previous years and I'm pretty sure he's in not a hundred percent but yes we'll get into all of that and that connects actually with what Dawson was asking that that this is why this bit is the kind of and i wouldn't want to say boring because i find it exciting i like it i hope you're enjoying it but i still do want to say that this is the valley before we get into the the mountains and when we get to what you're talking about heidi like those post-structural ideas and those psychoanalytic stuff which obviously i'm going to get into the existentialists we get into a world of fun um that kind of leaves these arguments Behind, I mean, there's always something useful to find in them. As I say, I've enjoyed, I've really enjoyed this because I find stuff in them, and I don't ever think. Or sometimes this happens, but I tend to not think that there's any ideas that are in the dustbin of history in terms of philosophy. In terms of great philosophers, sometimes the idea in its original format doesn't work, but you can usually find something really interesting. Like for example, Pascal, where I said the the, the wager. As, a, as an analytic argument doesn't work, but as an existential description of our experience in the world, it's beautiful. And not only beautiful, it's incredibly rich. Um, so uh, why was I saying, oh yeah, but I was saying that before I say, but we will kind of leave these behind a bit, right? They're not. They're still not that interesting. Um, we'll get into the mystics, the existentialists, and the post-structural, post-modern stuff. And I'm very excited about that. Will everybody be excited about that. <laughs>